Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray now these words of mine would not be my words, but they may be your words. May they be your words. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pure and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> From Ephesians now, chapter 4, continuing our summer series on the letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians really became what's called a circular letter, circulated all through the churches in the early Christian world. Eventually, it got around, but this is chapter four of Paul's letter to Ephesus. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Now come, lead us again, Lord, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen. By the way, you may occasionally see me do this because that's why I, I like visual ex- expressions of faith and this is kind of a, when you embody a movement like that, it kind of brings it home to you in a way and this, actually the Catholics didn't invent this this all goes back all the way to the Tertullian and the early church, I think the second century. And the way I do it is you put, it's, your, your hand becomes a catechism. This is the Trinity, these three fingers here. And then this, these two on the bottom stand for the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. So your, whole, your hand becomes a catechism, right? So occasionally you might see me do this, because why should the Catholics have all the cool stuff? <laughs> I mean, you know, we can share. There's no patent on that stuff, you know? So, so anyway, so I'm ecumenical, evangelical. You feel me? You know, so that's how it is. But anyway, but hey, maybe some of you, you know, want to talk to me about that, feel free. But, but that, that just helps me. It's not because I'm more pious. It just it helps you to visualize it. Anyway, so Paul is a prisoner in, in uh, uh, well, He's a prisoner, listen, of the Lord. Did you see that? He's a prisoner of the Lord. Wait a minute, Paul, aren't you being guarded by Rome? Uh, no, I'm actually a prisoner for God. See, he, he gets the bigger picture. It's like life from 5,000 feet, right? Whatever's going on in you, as Paul says, it's for the Lord. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher for the Lord, right? If you're a student, you're a student for the Lord. If you're a widow, or a widower. You're a widower, widower for the Lord. If you're an unemployed person, you're unemployed for the Lord. You're the Lord's. Whatever good and scary things may come and go in the first part of that, that for the Lord remains. He holds you, he grips it all. There's nothing on this earth that escapes his presence and his containing of you. Whatever you and I are, it's for the Lord in that verse. Well, in light of that then, 
In light of how we're claimed in every inch of our lives, Paul says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So in light of the fact that this is for the Lord, live, in, live into that calling from the Lord. It's, if it's the Lord's, then act like it. Uh, this week, I was listening in my office, as I sometimes do, to uh, one of my favorite preacher teachers. I like, I have a lot of different, really a core group of theologians I love to listen to, and one of them, and preachers and practitioners, and one of them is Earl Palmer. How many of you know Earl Palmer? They, oh, he's one of my heroes. And he's well into his 80s now, I think late 80s, he's still going, and he's one of my heroes. I I love him, I just love Earl, he's so great, I love how he just is so enthusiastic and how he talks, and he's one of my heroes, and really an evangelical reform, Presbyterian Renaissance man, par excellence. I listened to him preach this week, and he, he got into this passage, he was actually in Matthew, but he reached into Paul, and he said this, and this was, this was in 19, uh, 1990, at the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, and listen to what Earl Palmer says about this passage. He said, notice what Paul is saying. Let your manner of life be congruent with the gospel. Be congruent with the gospel. Live it out. So he says this, let it live out what was lived in. It's that simple. You know something? You know what the world needs today? The world needs today some congruent Christians. And here's what Earl went on to say. The world doesn't need powerful Christians. Earl continued, I'm a little alarmed actually about a whole movement in Christian circles. There are actually many evangelical Christians now that I think are almost making a fetish of power. Desiring power in our lives, even saying what the Holy Spirit's gonna give us is power, power, power. Now, Earl said, the Holy Spirit is powerful. But the New Testament understanding of power is not so much that I get power in my life. That could do a lot of harm to me. The New Testament doctrine of power is not that I have power, but that I know that Jesus Christ has power. He has the authority. He's the king that forgave me 15 years of salary in that parable, right? He must be very rich. He's the one who has the power. I just get to share the same gift that that guy owes me back, right? We get to share the power of the king. That's Earl back in 1990. Incredibly prophetic, prescient words. The world would have us believe that the way to impact the world is by grasping and wielding power. The gospel shapes us differently, focusing not on grasping power to win, but rather focusing us on being grasped by the God who's already won. And in our own submission and surrender to the God who's already won, we share the fruits of that victory. You see that, you see, you see the the way that that stacks. The gospel shapes us not to focus on grasping the power to win, but to focus on being grasped by the God who's won. And in our own submission and surrender to the triune God, you see there's a submission and a surrender that goes on rather than rather than a wielding. I was standing in line this week. Uh, at a Dick's Sporting Goods, and I was in a hurry. You ever been in a line in a hurry? 
And so, and, so, and of course, it's, it's like three or four people deep, and, the, and there's, a, there's, a young, two young men, there's a young man behind the counter who's talking to the young man at the counter, and they're waxing beautifully about the baseball bat the guy's going to buy and about who he played for. And I'm just kind of, I'm like, oh, come on, man. You know, like, I'm in a hurry, can't you see? Oh, man, what would it mean to be grasped by the power of God? You know, there's more things in life than being on time that matters. But I'm saying, look at what God is doing in the fellowship of, this, of these two guys here. Right? And, I'm, and I'm feeling powerless to move the line. But here's the trick. Submit to the one who's powerful, who really has the power. Right? I am tempted in those situations. And there's a million of them. Every day in our lives, right, we're tempted to somehow wield power, you know, rev the engine, assert ourselves, whatever, you know, you know who we are. And no, it's like chill, take a moment, remember who has the power and submit to that. Not a, not a wielding of power, but a submission to the one who has won. Not trying to win, but submit to the one who has won. And let that set me up. We, Ephesians is clear. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We are forgiven of sins. We're lavished upon. We have all of this. But we're blessed so that we can take the lead in blessing the world. We're forgiven so that we can forgive. We're lavished upon so we can share it. Well, Paul in verse 2 gives us a sense of what is the human shape of that. What does that shape life? And here's what he says. What does grace and lavish spiritual blessing look like? Here's what it looks like. Verse two, be completely humble and gentle. I really like Seahawks coach Pete Carroll. I love Pete. I love his passion. I love how he's always doing this. I worry he's going to permanently become like this. But anyway, I just love his passion. I love that. And uh, I remember when, I don't know where I saw this, but he he was doing a phone call with someone they just drafted and he talked to the person yeah, congratulations you're on the team and then his last words Pete's last words to this young and new NFL player they just drafted were like he, he I think when somebody like this he goes hey stay humble wow well sure you can see an NFL coach telling that to a new draftee but here a coach, Paul, is saying to us, stay humble. This guy's under house arrest. You'd think his circumstance would be humbling enough. <laughs> but apparently, Paul is so confident in his status in Christ, even as he's under house arrest, that he's got to warn us not to have too much swag. You know, stay humble. You know, I know we have all that we have in Christ. You know, but remember, be completely humble and gentle. In the New Testament, humble is connected with serving the Lord in a lowly way. One of my first memories of Earl Palmer when I was at UPC as an intern uh, some years ago was I saw Earl carrying a a thing of of water glasses down the hall. The great master teacher Earl Palmer in a very basic act of service. He says, be completely humble and gentle, 4-2. Scholars point out that Roman culture, and I think our culture does this too, often confuses gentleness with weakness. But this is not the point here. If you really think about being gentle, being gentle and humble takes its own kind of strength. It takes a certain kind of strength to let someone have the last piece of pie. (laughs) It takes a certain kind of strength 
to, to step back from your agenda or withhold your emotions and, or, or keep them in check and let that conversation go on the line. And in many other ways, you know, that we need to restrain our irritation to have a caring, kind thought or restrain our anxiety so we can let things go. There's a, there's a, there's a strength to meekness in Jesus before Pilate, you know, getting, getting interrogated and he doesn't play by any of those games. We're playing a different, a different, for a different master, a different coach. Bearing with one another in love. So here we go. Patience, humility, bearing with. This is what grace looks like. This is what lavished grace looks like in real life. Patient, bearing with. Long-suffering is connected with God's patience with his people, as we find in the book of Exodus. There's also a fruit of the Spirit of patience in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. And then Paul says this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep it. Notice it's keeping it, it's not achieving it. We've been given this. This unity of the Spirit is here. We, we just had a beautiful service for my sister-in-law who's, who's uh, battling uh, cancer and is on hospice, is stable, uh, but we had a, she became confirmed Roman Catholic and we had a Jesuit priest leading uh, a couple of Protestant evangelical Presbyterians and my wife and I and uh, my my. My brother-in-law and his wife were Byzantine Catholics, uh, and then my sister-in-law, who uh, uh, Beth Eli, who became Roman Catholic. There's a, that's a, and then there were some other representations in the room too. We were one in Christ in a profound way in that service, and that service just helped us to access that and keeping it, keeping what we have in Christ. Keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It's a full-time job. You can keep it as you follow up with a phone call to check in on that person who you've lost touch with. You keep it as you make the first move on that loved one who you've lost touch with. Or you can keep that unity as you stick with that person who's offended you. Or you can keep in that unity as you pray I've come to see prayer in my life as actually a way not only to commune with God, but it's a way to commune and connect with the people we're praying for in a way, right? It's staying in that partnership even when there's friction. That's keeping the unity. Well, apparently the church has always struggled with this. It's nothing new, Ephesians. In Ephesians in the first century, just out the gate, the church has, been, has to be reminded, keep the unity of the spirit. And we still need to hear it. And then Paul, he says, keep the unity of the spirit Keep it, you've been given it, keep it. And then as if to remind us of what we have, verse four, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope and you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The words that dominate this verse, one and all, one spirit, one hope. This is the foundation of the unity that we have. It's not our unity. It's the unity that is given to us in grace by the one God who's over it all. Jesus is our one Lord, Paul says. Lord is used 22 times by Paul to describe Jesus in this letter, 22 times. It's the title for God in the Old Testament and was used by early believers as a title for Jesus, even before Paul came along. Bottom line, unity here is not just a nice concept that we pull out of the air. Unity is a theological, spiritual reality in the triune God of grace. The Lordship of Christ, the unity of the Spirit, and the fatherhood of God overall. That's what gives our unity its oomph. 
It's not what we achieve. It's a gift we've been given, and our task is to maintain it through the power of the Spirit, which is also God at work in us. Be a vessel for the Spirit of God, a venue for the Spirit of God to maintain the unity that God's already given you. A squeeze on the shoulder, a hug, a handshake. Now that we're post-COVID, we can start to do that. Or breakfast, or dinner, or lunch, or a warm welcome. Oh. We say, Lord, this, this person and I are so different, I just can't relate. But you two are part of the same body, God says. God, I, I just don't respect that person for what they did. For that. But God says, I am the father of both of you. Lord, I'm just out of fuel trying to connect with this person. There's no hope. Yes, God says, there is hope. The hope is me. <laughs> Unity is reality in the triune God, and we spend our lives catching up to that and embracing each other. Sometimes it seems impossible. Sometimes we catch glimpses of it. Sometimes like that service for Beth Eli, it pours in. But through our faith in Jesus Christ, it's always there. We have a lot to do, but we have a lot to work with. God's done it, and all around us there are signs of what God's done. May it be so for you and for me too, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen, amen.